WGN, Mark Hamrick is the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate. I don't want to borrow trouble here, but let's start with this. Does the debt stealing standoff, which uh, we're sort of at, I guess, today, Congress hasn't come to terms, but it'll be more of an issue in June. But um, are you worried about that? Is that something that people are going to have to deal with, us average Americans, Mark? Hello, John. Good to be with you. I think if you have a ledger and you have a list of things to uh, either celebrate or a list of things to be concerned about with respect to the economic outlook, uh, the debt ceiling situation is absolutely on the worrisome side. Uh, And we need only look at the uh, rather uh, challenging process that, uh, frankly, House Republicans went through to elect a speaker, uh, really, you know, recalling some uh, historical examples that uh, were many decades uh, previous. And uh, we've never defaulted on our debt in this country. We've had a number of uh, close calls with the debt ceiling in the past. Um, And uh, this is simply borrowing trouble uh, to keep the borrowing parallel uh, going because we've had the debt ceiling for over a century. It's done absolutely nothing to restrain federal spending. $31.4 trillion right now. And if we didn't fund the government sufficiently after June, then does that mean Social Security recipients might not get their Social Security checks or their full checks, that uh, military pensions would not be paid, stuff like that? Well, John, it's important to differentiate between funding the government, which uh, elected officials have failed to do uh, numerous times in the past decade, and uh, an unprecedented default, which is to say that uh, the government fails to pay its obligations essentially in their entirety. And so uh, we're talking about failing to pay on uh, money owed on government debt, which includes treasury bonds and bills. It includes paying Social Security recipients and includes uh, pensioners uh, who have been uh, federal civilian employees of the government, failure to pay veterans benefits and failure to pay uh, potentially Medicare as well. But I think you know, you can imagine a scenario where if that were the only consideration, so to speak, you could maybe deal with that for a couple of days. The problem is, among others, that uh, Treasury debt uh, is regarded to be a risk-free investment because the federal government stands behind it. Uh, and you know, obviously, there's a history of stability with our own country's uh, governance and, and its ability to make good on its debts. But if indeed we started to fail uh, to make good on those obligations, then um, a number of things would occur. Uh, financial dominoes would fall. And there's no doubt uh, that we'd have a financial crisis, and it would only add to uh, an economic contraction. Jobless claims declined by 15,000 to 190,000. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's quite remarkable that uh, we have this measure of uh, essentially representative of fresh layoffs falling back to uh, low levels of last year, both in September and April. Uh, And, you know, we've certainly had plenty of. news bulletin, so to speak, on individual companies announcing layoffs or making cuts, uh, but yet the nation's unemployment rate remains at a historic low of 3.5% as of last check. And uh, jobless claims, as well as continuing claims, the total number of individuals receiving these payments remain remarkably low. You might be able to say that perhaps the job market is the best performing uh, part of the economy if you can cut the pie that way. The Dow's uh, down again today. What's driving this latest uh, direction? It's been off a bit. 
Well, uh, the, you know, the market is off its lows, so, uh, you know, we, we want to sort of take notice of the fact that uh, we have made some improvement in stock prices uh, recently. That That's notable, given the fact that uh, there's actually been, you know, at least something akin to a debate about whether we could have been in the phases of beginning a new a bull market. That's a separate question. But I think, first of all, a number of economic readings we've been getting have really raised a more serious uh, consideration of the idea of, is there a recession underway? And, you know, you have two straight months of um, 1% plus declines in retail sales. The, the housing market has been regarded to have been in a recession for the greater part of the past year. And we've had uh, recessionary signals uh, coming from both the service sector and the manufacturing sector, uh, courtesy of the Institute for Supply Management, which issues uh, not necessarily uh, cocktail party conversation quality economic data to rise to the level of uh, family dinner table, so to speak. But it's closely watched by uh, those of us that watch these things. And when those numbers fall into contraction mode, uh, that's consistent with a recession. So I'm not saying that a recession is underway. But it seems like we're seeing more and more uh, signals that uh, if, if it isn't underway, one could be uh, beginning quite soon. So that's reason for caution. But it, that doesn't tell us anything about the length or depth or severity of such a contraction. And, you know, we, we had a very short and sharp one at the beginning of 2020 with the pandemic, which was obviously uh, the result of quite unique and unprecedented circumstances. And uh, this one will have been caused if it occurs largely by the Federal Reserve when it's uh, aggressive rate increases. I think our our expectation right now is, though, that it won't be a, a long or a hard one. It could, it could be worse. Um, we'll have to pick it up here another day. That's Mark Hamrick, the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, John. Here's Ali Marati, a reporter on consumer products, food and restaurants, retail, media, and advertising at Cranes. ChicagoBusiness.com's the website. Welcome back, Allie. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I think last we visited, we talked a little bit about this uh, Jewel Osco story um, and how they're doing generally. Uh, talk to me about your reporting on the 18th about how well they're doing right now. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these two grocery giants are trying to merge. It's a huge merger, $24.6 billion. Um, if it goes through, which they're getting a lot of antitrust scrutiny in Washington, D.C., we'll have Mariano's parent merging with Julasco's parent. So there was a big debate going on, a lot of concern coming from state regulators around the country, including here in Illinois, about um, Jewel Osco parent Albertsons was planning to pay out a $4 billion special dividend to its shareholders. And there was a lot of concern over that dividend because, first of all, Albertsons didn't have $4 billion on hand. They would need to borrow it to pay it out. You know, their main shareholder is a private equity firm. They were worried that if they did pay it out and this deal didn't go through, Albertsons, Jules' parent would not be, you know, competitive anymore because they would have spent so much money paying it out to their shareholders. So that was delayed and delayed and delayed for a few months due to a court case out in Washington State. And what happened this week was that, uh, you know, basically the judge lifted the order delaying that payout. So Albertsons has said they are going to go forward with that. That's sort of the latest development here. Well, does that mean it's going to happen? Will there be any other federal regulatory roadblocks for the deal? 
Um, so we don't know about the deal for sure. We know the payout is going to happen. So Albertsons will start giving that $4 billion out to shareholders immediately. The deal itself it's still, is still being debated. It's still working through all of the antitrust scrutiny that's going on in Washington. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think the question I asked last time, and I'll ask every time we have this conversation then, is so then what happens in my local Jewel or Kroger, assuming it stays open, um, what brand would it have on the front of the store? And would the quality of food be better or worse at one store or the other? What happens at my grocery store? Very great questions. We don't know for sure. They haven't said exactly, but I've talked to a lot of experts about this who have sort of hypothesized what's likely to happen. And typically when grocery stores merge, which happens a lot, this is just a very, very big one that's drawing a lot of attention. But typically what happens is they keep the name of the store, right? So a Jewel will probably stay a Jewel, a Mariano's will probably stay a Mariano's here in the Chicago market. And that is because the customers are so loyal to that brand. So they change the name, you know, they're, they're likely to face some sort of customer upheaval and they don't want to do that. To your point about if it's still open, that's a really great point because, you know, Jewel and Kroger are likely going to have to get rid of some of these stores to get through those antitrust concerns that they're facing in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. They've said they could offload up to 350 and some of those will probably be in the Chicago market because this is one of the markets for them around the country that has the most overlap in stores. As for brands on the shelf, I think the big difference we'll see there is in their private label brands. So, for example, in Mariano's, you see that Kroger Simple Truth private label brand, the house brand, as it's called. Jewel has its own as well. Um, What experts are telling me about those is that they'll likely take, you know, whichever does the best. You know, maybe they'll get rid of some. Maybe they'll add more. Maybe you'll see Simple Truth on Jewel shelves now or once the deal goes through. Well, sort of remains to be seen. But, yeah. Will they still be a Kroger store and will it still be a Jewel store? Yeah, I mean, experts are saying that is likely true. They likely will keep those those brand names. names. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if in the long run, though, this will help a Whole Foods or even an Aldi's if some stores close. Uh, the people in those neighborhoods that were going to those stores still want to get some groceries. That is, if they have to sell them off, they'll sell them to a competitor, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. A competitor would be the one that would buy it. You know, we could see an Aldi come in. They're doing a lot of expansion. We could see a new grocery store that doesn't have a presence in Chicago. Hmm. Or maybe like, you know, we're seeing um, Dom's Market. That's one that uh, is coming from Bob Mariano, who founded Mariano's. He's expanding a new grocery brand as well. So there's some interesting opportunities there. Well, here's a headline. Walgreens hints it might have gone too far fighting theft. Really? Why? I I, I so resent theft at stores, both for the store's sake and for my sake, because I got to pick up the margin. Why did you write about that? What's the news there? Yeah, that's a good point. You do have to pick up the margin. Um, So the news here, if you remember back in the holiday season of 2021, Um, Everybody was all the retailers were very, very concerned about what they call organized retail crime. And this is more than just, you know, somebody going in and stealing a tube of toothpaste or, you know, a stick of deodorant. Right. This is, um, you know, an organized person coming in, groups coming in. They're they're stealing large amounts of items and then reselling them online to make their own money off of them. Oftentimes it's smash and grab violent cases. So what we saw in 2021 was a lot of retailers, particularly in the Gold Coast in Chicago, really ramping up their security. Maybe they're putting in, you know, shatterproof glass, those types of things, shortening their hours. 
Um, Walgreens was one that kind of raised the most alarm bells. There were five locations in San Francisco that they shut down completely, and they blamed it on organized retail theft. They were just losing so much money out of those stores, they said, that you know, it wasn't worth keeping them open. So now what they've said uh, during a recent earnings call is that basically they went, they may have gone a little bit too far on that. They're seeing things improve. Basically, they're, they're, the money they're putting into these anti-shoplifting efforts is paying off, they're saying. So they're going to peel that back a little bit. How they're going to do that remains to be seen exactly. But, um, yeah, it was sort of interesting to see them say that. You know, I think the quote was, Maybe we cried too much last year yeah, you know, about this retail I, stuff. So interesting to hear an executive say that. Ali Marotti writing in ChicagoBusiness.com for Cranes. Always interesting, Ali. Thanks for your work. Appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Wintrust Business Lunch. You're listening to WGN and Rebecca Ryan, the economist and futurist. You can always read her stuff and connect at RebeccaRyan.com. In fact, you can connect with her for a free live Zoom event, which is right around the corner on the 25th, uh, so that I don't forget, real quick, what's that going to be about? What are you going to do online, Rebecca? Well, I'm going to admit, John, I feel a little bad even mentioning it because it competes with the Trust business lunch uh, time <laughs> slot. So listeners can't go wrong. They can come and hang out with you on January 25th or they can hang out with me. So my team of futurists and I are going to share an outlook through 2023-2024. So some of the signals and trends we're looking at and some of the tools that we're recommending people use to help them navigate through this uncertainty. I know that you are maybe then, but also here now, just thinking about weak signals to watch for this year. What's a weak signal? Well, one that I think um, a lot of people in Chicago are paying attention to is this notion that, you know, we don't have as many office workers and it's having a real impact on downtown. So as a national benchmark, there are about 30 percent fewer people in central business districts now. But the most recent data in Chicago is that we're at 51 percent levels. Uh, That's what the Chicago Loop Alliance has said. So what's happening is, you know, the lunch rush was always office workers, but now we're finding that the lunch rush is only happening on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and it's having this downward spiral effect. You know, businesses can't afford to stay open if they're only getting 60% of the revenue that they got in the before times. So we're in a little bit of a downward spiral. But a weak signal is maybe a preliminary sign of things to come. Oh, we've picked up this signal. So what does it mean? Does this mean that's the way it's going to be? Or do you think a year from now, business will be more robust at these places? I don't think so. I mean, that's my sense. We'll know more, like you said, when the signal becomes stronger. But um, like in the the Chicago Metro, many uh, restaurateurs are saying, we're going to give it this year and see how it goes. Um, And what we're anticipating is that downtown business districts are going to start to reinvent themselves as neighborhoods. So less of a, um, you know, eight to five uh, and try to rethink some of that downtown real estate, how it could be more residential and how we could start creating programming that once again makes the downtown feel alive. Well, if folks migrated from the South Loop or maybe the Fulton Market area more towards the financial district in Chicago, that would happen. You know, a stumbling block for that, though, isn't so much the real estate prices as it is the, the crime that people fear. Um, do you have anything to say about that? 
We we don't have anything to say about that. I mean, w- w- one of the things we're talking about here is my team puts out a, a week signal, um, an annual newsletter. So the week signal about central business districts was in that. But this this notion of crime um, is is one that's really important, and it's affecting a lot of big cities. And here again, um, we know that the more eyes are on the street, the less crime there is. But if people feel afraid to come downtown because there's just there aren't enough eyes on the street, that too can have a downward spiral effect long term. And that's a battle for city leaders that needs to be fought on two fronts. One is policing the actual crime, and then the other one is the perception of the crime and the selling of the safety of a city without compromising the truth. Don't ask me how you balance those two, but I don't think we've done a very good job of that in Chicago. Your team is also looking at the environmental concerns um, going forward. Do you mean on a local, national level? What environmental issues are you thinking about? Yeah, so putting this list of these signals together, um, we looked at over 241 signals that we've looked at over the course of the last 12 months, and we developed these themes. And this environmental one is is really about how we're redefining some of the things with respect to the environment. So let's travel way to the West Coast. Um, you know, the, the Mountain West has been in a drought for over a decade and you can't really call it a drought anymore when it's been going on for 10 years. So we have to find new language to talk about some of these things. But closer to home, in Chicago for you and Madison for me, the freeze-thaw cycles that we have in an average winter, it wreaks havoc on our asphalt. Um, so, you know, like having to repair potholes and streets and even the um you know the the walkways that make make uh, sidewalks safe for people who are in wheelchairs or people who are visually disabled you know the these freeze and thaw cycles are making upkeep of those things much harder and more expensive so this is another thing to watch i'll tell you those of it's funny you mention that just in the last week or so potholes on the expressways and city streets i'm hitting the same ones over and over again i thought oh man that wasn't there a month ago but it's there now, probably because of the warm weather we've been having. And then we're going to get a I freeze. Came through, yes. I came through Chicago on January 1st, early in the morning, and um, hit a pothole so hard that I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to have my car realigned. So you just think about the, like the, the, the knock-on effects of that. So does that impact car insurance rates? Does it impact um, vehicle wear and tear? Does it impact... Um, used car and new car markets, does it impact how we think about, um, you know, uh, warrantying our cars? So, yeah, these things, we like to think of them as like one thing, you know, one trend, but they have these secondary and tertiary knock-on effects. Rebecca Ryan's The Economist and Futurist. She's got an event coming up. One more time, we'll tell you about that. But what are you seeing then? I know you alluded to this a minute ago, the future of work at home. Uh, it's four days home, one day in the office for some people I know. Which direction does that go? Where does it end? Yeah, well, I think it's starting to shake out, you know, that uh, for the federal government, as an example, has now, you know, the most uh, bureaucratic and hard to change. They've said everybody has to be in the office at least one day a week. Um, but many people are doing the 3-2 model either three in the office, two at home, or two in the office, three at home. And I think that's kind of where it's going to stabilize. 
And what, you know, what this means, this has a, a bunch of questions as well. It's like, if I'm working from home and I fall while I'm working, do I get a workers' comp claim for that? Will homeowners associations allow people to be working from home, you know, around the clock? So each of these little signals has interesting things to watch for. You can read more about these trends, including governance and finance and communication, and you can participate in a live event if you go to RebeccaRyan.com. Is that where I'm going to sign up for your Zoom event, January 25th? Yeah, I'll be thinking of you. You hold your show down, and I'll hold my show down. RebeccaRyan.com slash events. Nice to talk to you, Rebecca, and we always appreciate your insight. Appreciate you, John. Take care. We've got more business news right now. Here's Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. An Amazon distribution center on Chicago's west side likely won't open until late this year, even though the building is finished and ready to open now. Cranes reports the West Humboldt Park warehouse was set to open at the end of last year. But Amazon is going through some growing pains after it expanded too quickly. The company's been cutting jobs, closing distribution centers, and postponing the opening of others. The company recently announced it was cutting 18,000 jobs. The location at Division and Costner includes a 140,000-square-foot distribution center, and Amazon planned to hire as many as 500 workers there. The neighborhood's been hoping for the economic boost from the development. The Chicago City Council's approved a new $5 million fund to help small businesses redevelop vacant storefronts on LaSalle Street. It's part of Mayor Lightfoot's plan to transform the LaSalle Street corridor from commercial to mixed use with more residential units. Businesses can apply for $250,000 in grant money that can be used to rehab or retrofit storefronts on the first floor of buildings in the corridor. Developers have already proposed more than a billion dollars in projects as part of the larger LaSalle Street redevelopment. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. We've got the business of food now. Here's Steve Alexander. Yes, and we're going to talk about coffee after I thank our sponsor, the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience your life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. Okay, if you're brewing your midday cup of coffee and you're a coffee podster, you know, Keurig or Nespresso or whatever, and you're feeling guilty about the environmental impact of all those used pods you're dumping in the trash, Stop it, says Allison Chu, and I'm a climate solutions reporter for the Washington Post. Allison wrote an article in the Post this week that waters down the assumption that pods are wreaking environmental havoc, while the old school brew a whole pot method is okay. Well, since I threw out my Mr. Coffee years ago and have gone to the pods, I am so relieved to read that, Allison. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes with sustainability, things can be counterintuitive. She says it's important to look at a product's entire lifespan from the time it's made to when it hits the landfill. And this is not a matter of which method of brewing coffee is good for the environment. It's which is least bad. The latest research that's been done looks at four common brewing techniques to calculate emissions uh, throughout the lifespan of that specific cup of coffee, whether it was brewed using a pod or using, you know, a traditional filter coffee maker. And the coffee smackdown winner, the cup of joe with the least impact on the environment? Well, neither of the two methods I mentioned. Instant coffee seemed to be the most environmentally friendly choice. There's a lot more to the research, and it can get kind of deep in the weeds with what type of fuel is being used to produce the energy that heats up the water to make a coffee, and whether you add milk and sugar and whatever. And you can read all about it in Allison Chu's article in the Washington Post. But let's get back to comparing the methods I mentioned earlier. Is it better 
for the environment to brew the old school Mr. Coffee away or the single cup Keurig or Nespresso style. There is a noticeable difference in the amount of CO2 equivalents that can be produced from these different methods, but pods don't seem to be terrible in comparison to the traditional brewing method. There you go. No more feeling quite as guilty about all those pods you're throwing out. From the corn farm to your belly, today's National Popcorn Day. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Here's Dale Buss, veteran financial journalist. He's the founder of an organization called the Flyover Coalition. He talks about stuff that happens in these parts business-wise. Dale, you're talking a little bit about what here? The leftover federal largesse from the COVID era. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, that's that's one of the factors that uh, is is really roiling economic development in, in flyover country these days, especially the upper Midwest. There are so many things happening right now that I kind of wanted to, to just briefly go over with you what kind of an, an exciting arena this is right now. I mean, in the Great Lakes states, let's say, we have all these inherent advantages, right? We're strong in manufacturing. We've got a great location logistics-wise with the rest of the country. We've got water resources and reasonable housing costs. And some of the new things that are kind of working in our favor are, you know, number one, along with many other states, we've got billions of dollars in our state treasuries that are still just kind of sitting there uh, with politicians trying to figure out what to do with them. And that's all left over from COVID generosity by the federal government, right? I mean, all those trillion-dollar spending bills that Washington so Michigan's got a $9 billion surplus, and Wisconsin has $7 billion. So one of the things you've got going on right now as states continue to jockey for future manufacturing jobs and so on is that there's plans for tax reform in those states. And I know Illinois had some temporary relief last year, but the state is still pretty you know, generally uncompetitive. And then you've got Indiana, which has always been, or for a long time, has been strong. They're like number nine in the tax foundation ranking of state tax climates. But in Wisconsin, the Republicans who are still in charge of the state legislature are talking about a flat tax, which is very attractive to businesses and especially business owners. And then even in Michigan, where where I live and where we've got a, a completely democratic control of state government for the first time in 40 years, they're talking about an income tax cut. Uh, folks are not used to Democrats in charge of government talking about an income tax cut. But in Michigan, that's that's definitely on the table right now. And really the only reason is because of all this leftover money from COVID. But that's, you know, those are the kinds of things that are going to make Michigan and Wisconsin more competitive. Now, on the other hand, you've got this Democratic control in Michigan, uh, and there's a lot of talk about overturning right to work. And that's going to be problematic for Michigan, because when I talk to CEOs, especially about manufacturing expansion and putting plants, the very first elimination factor for them is right to work. Really? So, you know, that, that's why Michigan, Wisconsin, Kentucky uh, joined Indiana as a right-to-work state over the last several years. Um, and that's made them super more competitive. I mean, it's not the only factor, but it is like, number one, many companies cross the state off their list if they're not right-to-work. And so you still got Illinois, Ohio, Minnesota, and even Missouri are still enforced unionization states. So this whole right-to-work dynamic is going to be another thing that affects things going forward here. So it's going to be an exciting period. Well, in the case of Michigan and Wisconsin, that's $16 billion. What do they do with that money? I know, you know, it wouldn't be insane. Well, okay, but here's just the thought. 
that was for COVID relief. I mean, if if right. we're, if we're out of the... Right, very few strings attached. It, it, lucky for us or them, but I mean, in a way, you think they should give it back because it's not being used for COVID relief, even though I guess everything is COVID relief. Everything is somehow connected. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the idea was that it's COVID relief of the what COVID and, and the shutdowns did to did their the economy. economy. Sure. Okay, so then what do they do with that money? Do they attract new businesses? Do they subsidize plants? What happens? Yes and yes. And also there's a lot of talk, like, for instance, in Michigan about throwing that money at education, which is unfortunate because the state performed very poorly in terms of education during COVID. I mean, the ratings of our kids here went way down. And yet, you know, the Democratic uh, juggernaut there wants, well, we'll just throw more money at education. We've got this $9 billion sitting around. Well, but Michigan's an interesting case. You know, we're, we're more competitive in some ways and less than others. I'm sorry, but what's bad about spending money on education if a state doesn't do well in national rankings or if the kids are underachieving? Well, effective investments in education are great, right? So states where you see uh, investments in, in, in choice, for example, or the allowance of choice. But to just throw more good money after bad, there's an argument about that, you know, doing that in terms of public education without significant reform. And I think that's the problem you have in Michigan. And the more democratic control I think that you have in the state, the more influence you have by teachers unions and other special interests that really end up controlling what happens to that education money. We spent a lot of money in education in Michigan and the results have only been poorer. So I don't know exactly what's happening in Illinois, but I suspect there are some of the same struggles there. I'm out of time today. I'd like to see that money spent on chip plants. Do we have any computer chip plants coming to the Midwest or Illinois? Well, not necessarily Illinois. Pritzker is bidding for some, but they're certainly coming to Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky, all around Illinois. So maybe <laughs> if Illinois could get more uh, competitive, uh, certainly it's it's in the complex and the, the footprint of the chip-making industry that's coming to uh, the upper Midwest. But yeah. I don't think there are any big victories so far for Illinois. Well, maybe I'll talk to the governor about that. Hey, Pete, give me the phone number for Switzerland, and I'll bring it up. That's Dale Buss, the veteran financial journalist and founder of an organization called the Flyover Coalition. You can hit that.org, and you'll find more of his writing and thoughts there. Okay, Dale, good to talk to you again. Thanks, John.